0: So open our Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. Good report from Kevin. We're excited. Um, I'm not looking at all the stuff that the team is looking at because we have a, a search committee that's, that's their responsibility. And then I see what they're picking out and saying these are, these are good matches. And it is very encouraging. And I was very encouraged to read uh, and watch the videos of these guys that they brought in. And it's interesting because um, it can take churches a very long time to even get to that that stage. Uh, How are we getting to that stage as quickly as we are? I'll tell you in part. uh, It's because this is a happy church. It's a healthy church, and uh, that doesn't mean we're, we're perfect. We've got, a, we've, got, we've got lots of issues. We've got issues because if I'm the guy that's doing most of the preaching, and you are the people that are here every Sunday, we're going to have issues. Like, that's just it. But it is. It's a happy family. It's a healthy family, as, as much as you, as you can be. We have a lot to work on, a lot of areas to grow, but it's true. And some of you, if this is the only church you really remember or know, uh, you don't know uh, what, like, a regular Baptist members meeting is like, uh, like I've been to members meetings, and if you've been Baptist throughout your life, and you've gone to what they call, call business meetings, then you've seen these meetings where people are yelling, like legit yelling, uh, accusing, like all kinds of drama, and it turns out, and we see it in the book of Acts, we see it, ha- we see it happening right here in chapter 15, that for disorder to enter a congregation, for uh, unity to begin to break down, uh, it doesn't take much. And it can happen for a variety of reasons. So do me a favor, let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts and listen as I read from verses 6 through 21. Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 21. The apostles and the elders were gathered together To consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth, And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Simon, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. And now he's quoting from the Old Testament. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would teach us, would help us to be the theologians you've made us to be. That we would be people who know you and love you and make you known. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here in Acts chapter 15, we see this disruption, this disruption that's happening at this church in Antioch. If you don't know the background what's going on here, we jumped right into it. Let me give you a brief recap. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is sent out on a missionary journey. So he and his man Barnabas, his main man, best friends, they go out with a team of people and they do missions, right? So they're going out there, they're evangelizing, they're preaching, they're planting churches, establishing new churches. Uh, They're making disciples. They go, they have this big route. They come back to Antioch now. They're tired. They're going to rest a little bit in terms of not traveling so much, but they're still teaching and preaching. Well, while they're at Antioch, and we see this in the first six verses of chapter 15, these guys come down from Judea and they are preaching something. Wrong. They're doing something different. They're saying, okay, yes, Gentiles, that is non Jews, Gentiles can be saved, but they have to be circumcised. If they're not circumcised, they're not in, they're out. And so Paul and Barnabas uh, debate these people and try to shut it down, and then they make a beeline for uh, Jerusalem, right? They, They want to go and talk to the rest of the apostles and the elders to get an official statement. They want to deal with this officially. They've got to do it because unbiblical theology has crept into the church and it's creating a kind of disorder. It's a disruption. And if you've been in the church long enough, you know that there are different kinds of disruptions that come into church life. Sometimes it's because of bad leadership, right? There's like, The cult of personality around a preacher, like your main preacher, that can become the brand of the church. And some churches kind of build their whole ministry around one person, and then that begins to reflect itself in a kind of weird, idolatrous, don't say no to the man with authority sort of culture in the church. And you know that you have built your church around an individual, around a personality instead of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, You know when that happens, usually too late, because by this time... The person has to leave. They move on or move up or they're fired. And the church really begins to struggle and falls apart. Why? Because they have built themselves around this cult of personality. You know, sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's just unaccountable leadership that, uh, that can't be held to task for mistakes that they make. It's, uh, some churches are set up to let leaders just do whatever they want, and the congregation has no say or input. This can lead to a, a disruption of peace. Or it can be the congregation itself. It's not always the leaders that go bad. Sometimes, I've seen, usually in smaller churches, where in a congregation will go in a wicked direction leaving a small leadership team sort of like unable to deal with it. Um, And and you see this happening when oftentimes uh, the the people will begin to be governed by their own preferences and selfishness, not willing to lay aside their preferences in order for the mission to be accomplished. You see disruption and disorder happening in churches when sin goes unchecked. That is public sin, well-known sin, but nobody says a word. Nobody wants to deal with it because it's awkward or it's embarrassing or you don't want to come across judgmental or you have other reasons you don't want to expose it. Maybe you're afraid of being exposed. But unchecked sin will bring a church down. But here we see it is unchecked. Well, it's not unchecked because it's being checked, but it's, it's unbiblical theology unbiblical theology and technically heresy in this case that has come in. And what we know is that doctrine, doctrine either gives life or it takes life. Doctrine either heals and helps or it hurts. If it's wrong, it hurts. If it's, if it's corrupt, it does damage. But if it's good, if it's true, if it's pure, then it heals, it helps, it revives, it restores. God uses truth and true doctrine to save sinners. So here's what I want us to see in this passage, Right? One principle to govern the whole thing, and that is that peace in the church and in our hearts is built on biblical theology. Peace in the church, and here I'm talking about a general kind of peace and unity, peace in the church and peace in our hearts, right, what we experience individually. This is built on biblical theology. Now, that doesn't mean that's all that's required for there to be peace in the church or peace in my heart. More is needed than biblical theology, but you have to at least have the biblical theology because this is the foundation for the peace in and of itself. So here's what we're going to do. Two basic sections here. We're going to talk about why doctrine matters briefly here. I just want to explain why doctrine is so important. And then, secondly, I want to give us uh, four ways we pursue peace in the church. Four ways we pursue theological peace in the church. So first... Why doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. In fact, it doesn't just matter. It's more than important. It is critical. It is essential. If we don't have doctrine, good doctrine, if we don't have theology, we don't have God. We don't have direction. Without theology, we cannot know the Lord. We cannot know ourselves. We cannot know the way. We are at an absolute loss. We have no mission. We have no message. We have no basis for unity. We are utterly lost without doctrine or theology. So let's define it. What is theology? You've heard me define it this way before, but I like to say that theology is the knowledge of God derived from Scripture that is personally experienced and publicly expressed. And I like to put it that way because theology is not the science and art of studying God. That's a hobby, okay? You can have a hobby. Hobbies are good. Everybody should have a hobby. But theology... Theology is the knowledge of God that is derived from Scripture, that is personally experienced and then publicly expressed. It is the knowledge of God, not just knowing about God, that's certainly part of it, you can't get away from that, you have to know about God, but it's the knowledge of God, that is a, a relational knowledge of God, to know the one who made you, to know the one who redeems you. Jesus says that he came that, he would, that we might have eternal life, and then he says what in John 17? And this is eternal life, that they would know you, Father, and the one that you sent. Theology is the knowledge of God that is derived from Scripture. This is where we learn the the details, the the person, the work, the character of God. It's where we learn about his ways and his his works. We we learn about ourselves and, and the world. Theology is... The knowledge of God, derived from Scripture, personally experienced and publicly expressed. See, theology is not meant to be accumulated as data in the brain, right? Now, it has to go into your brain. You've got to accumulate the data. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's not the end, right? You're supposed to bring in the information that it might live in your heart and bring about transformation. The idea is that you would personally experience the doctrines and the truths that are revealed in the Scripture. And even then, that is so that you can now become a vessel through which these things are are made known, made known to other people. Your job is not to amass some sort of body of divinity, right? A, a, a comprehensive systematic theology and keep it on the shelf in your brain or even just treasure it in your own heart. It is meant to be communicated, transmitted. Theology, theos, logos, God words. That's what it means, God words. You have the word of God, the revelation of God given to you that you might know God and then in turn make him known. Theology, therefore, matters. It matters because theology is what we are communicating or preaching when we preach the gospel. Theology is what is undergirding and driving our prayers when we pray to the Lord. Who are we addressing? What are we asking for? What is our confidence before him? That's all theology. Let me just give you a couple of passages very briefly here. First Timothy chapter four, verse sixteen. Keep a close watch on yourself. This is Paul talking to young Timothy. He's a pastor. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Now, this is, this is a, such a good word, right? He says two things here, and he says, like, what you, would, what you would expect, like, watch yourself. Keep a close watch on yourself. Don't be careless. Don't be stupid. Don't be foolish. Be disciplined. Be observant. Be aware of yourself and your surroundings. You, you get the implications, right? Know your temptations. Know your weaknesses. Surround yourself with the right kind of people, Right, the fellowship of the saints is, is critically important. You've got to have that. He, he's saying watch yourself, because if you don't watch yourself, you might drift, you might stumble and fall. So guard your heart. Another you know, way it's spoken of in scripture in the book of Proverbs. Guard your heart. Live carefully, Paul says, elsewhere. So keep a close watch on yourself, but also on the teaching, on the doctrine, right, on the content of what we teach. Keep a close watch on yourself, on your life, and on your theology. Know it intimately. Know it well. Watch it. Why? Because this is what ultimately leads to your salvation and the salvation of others. We're not not talking about getting stats wrong in a game that you enjoy. We're talking about facts and truths that actually saves sinners' lives. We're talking about facts and truths. We're talking about divine revelation that actually transforms the soul of an individual as we continue to believe and follow our Savior, theology matters. First Timothy chapter 6, we'll just move on. Chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceited. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, listen, he says a lot here, but let's just notice this. Watch out for yourself and watch out for the doctrine. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, he says here, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ... And the teaching that accords with godliness, he's foolish. He understands nothing. He's a danger. But what is that doctrine? It's doctrine that accords with godliness. Doctrine of theology is sometimes conceived as, conceived of as if it is information, right? It is, it is information or data meant to be stored in our brains, right? We don't view it as transformative, but it is essentially because it's the truth of God. Good theology results in godliness or piety. Truth is what God uses to sanctify us. How did Jesus say it in John 17, 17? Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So, yes, theology matters. And the stakes are high. This is, why, this is why they get on this right away. When somebody comes in preaching this other doctrine, this other gospel, that, yes, non-Jews can be saved, but they still have to be circumcised. Paul gets right on it. Barnabas gets right on it. And they go to the church to deal with it. Because what we're dealing with is we're not, we're not quarreling over, over some insignificant matter. We're talking about doctrines that ultimately glorify God and cause us to grow in faith and godliness, we're, these are important these are these are critical so so we care so the early church cared we're talking about god's glory listen if you if you get the doctrine wrong about god if we're getting doctrine wrong then what are we doing when we teach when we preach when we sing those things if we get the doctrine wrong we are not glorifying god instead we are spreading or encouraging some kind of falsehood about god aren't we aren't we lying in a sense, maybe not lying because that might be intentional, like we're trying to deceive, but we're certainly ignorant and we're promoting something that is untrue. When we get our important doctrines wrong, it's not insignificant. We are not glorifying God when we say things about him that are not true. We had better be careful. And there is a corresponding impact, though it is relevant, relative and it changes uh, from different issues and doctrines, but the, the, what you believe about God and your doctrines will have an impact on your piety, if we, some of our doctrines, if we get them wrong that has a direct impact, I'll give you one example. There, there are Christians and they, these are Christians who they love Jesus. They love the Bible. They are our brothers and sisters. OK, now let's talk about why they're wrong. Um, they can do the same for us, too. It's fine. They would say that sanctification is the work of the Lord. We would be like, right on. It's God's work. We would say, in fact, technically, it's the Holy Spirit who does it. And the Holy Spirit does it through the ministry of the word. So it's God's work that sanctifies us. Absolutely, we agree. Great. And then they would say, but because it is God's work and not our work, we have no role to play in it. So therefore, if you try to be godly, if you pursue godliness, if you try to be sanctified, um, you will be working against the process. In other words, you can't be... They're arguing there is nothing to do in sanctification but to believe more or trust more. Um, and this is wildly off target from what we see in Scripture. Certainly, we see that Scripture uh, that teaches that, um, that God is the one who sanctifies. That's why Jesus prays to the Father, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. It is God's work. But sanctification is, is something in which we are very active right? We are very active. We're called to put sins to death. We're called to put on righteousness. Uh, We're called to strive. We're we're, we're, we're called to pursue. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are active, strenuously active. And there's a recognition, even when it comes to Paul's ministry, that he does all of this. He labors with all of his might to make disciples. He labors with all of his might, working, working in accordance with the power that God gives him, that God is working in him. So, There is a sense in which we are very, very active in sanctification. It's God's work that changes us, but we are active in the process. And if you remove our active part in the the process of sanctification, we wind up doing nothing, and we wind up being less sanctified. There is an impact that your theology can have on your piety or on your Christian life. So it matters, that's the setup here. That's why this is so important, because we're dealing with not only with an important doctrine, but we're dealing with a gospel doctrine. So how did they pursue peace in a church that was experiencing some disruption, and what are these principles that, where we can all pursue peace in the church when it is necessary? Now, for us at Redeemer, it's a peaceful place, but it might not always be that way. We might run into a problem in the future, and we might need to be going through this very thing. So how do we pursue peace in the church, theological peace? Well, number one, it's going to require debate. People don't like debate today. I mean, people say that they like debate, but most people don't like, today, like debate. What they like are one liner zingers, and ownage, right? I Listen, I like that. I, I love clips when I see somebody say something stupid. It can be, it can be a political uh, back and forth. It can be a social issue. It can be a theological issue. If one guy says something dumb and the other guy really nails him, that's kind of fun. I like that. I like that. Like, yeah, you got, ooh, that was dumb and you got caught. Boom, you got, oh, that's what we like. We like one liner zingers and onage. That's, that's the, the, what the palette is for most people today. Um, but what we need is debate formal, long form, uh, intensive back and forth, testing ideas. Debate is sometimes necessary in house, in the church. Sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's not. When is debate unnecessary? In-house debate is unnecessary when you're dealing with matters of established orthodoxy that has already been articulated. For example, there is no need for us to have a debate in-house about the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is the God-man, the theanthropic person. He has a divine nature and a human nature, but he is one person. And he is eternally coexistent as Son with Father and Spirit. Like, this is established. We don't have to have in-house debates. This is why we have creeds and confessions. But until you have something clearly articulated, something established, then you will have to have debates. And so sometimes you don't have to go into debates in-house because there has already been an articulated orthodoxy. But other times, we do need to engage in debate because... It's untested waters, or there is a lack of clarity, or there is confusion, and when there is a lack of clarity and confusion, then we have to get to it, and sometimes there's going to be disagreements in a church about matters until you can sort them out, and that's okay. That's okay, because we ultimately have the Word of God, which we're going to get to in just a minute. So number one, to pursue peace in a church theologically, it will sometimes require debate. Number two, it will always call for courage. It takes courage. So let me look at, let's look at some of these verses. Acts chapter 15, here is the debate in verse 7. And after there had been much debate, so there's the debate. They got up there to Antioch, they're going to hash it out. Here it is. And then after that, Peter stood up, and Peter begins to speak courageously now. Peter says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. So hold on to that. That's really important. Peter is standing up, and he is making a particular point. His point is not merely that, hey, the Gentiles can believe the gospel and be saved without being circumcised. He is making that point, but that's not, that's not the... the, the That's not the pain point of his argument that he's driving at those who are disagreeing. His point is that, listen, you are not just disagreeing with this side of the aisle. You are disagreeing with God. You are arguing against God. You are telling God that he is wrong because you know what God has done. You saw it when I did it. That's what Peter says. He says, listen, you know that I preached the gospel to the Gentiles and the Gentiles believed. You saw it, and you know that God is for it. You know that God is behind it, because what did he do? He put his seal of approval on those Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. So they experienced the fullness of the Spirit. They were, they were adopted as sons. They, they were engrafted into the church, just like us. So Peter Peter says, you're doubting God. You're not just doubting me. You're not just losing an argument here. But his posture here, he's not, he's not hot. He's not... Hostile. it doesn't come across that way. It seems to me that Peter has a humble boldness that is driven by love. He's a humble boldness. So humble boldness means he understands that uh, he is a sinner who, who has received God's kindness and grace, and he is talking to his brothers and sisters who are also sinners. And so he loves the church. He loves the lost. He loves Israel He loves the Gentiles, and he wants to see all of this come together. He wants to see God's work continue, and he wants everybody to be celebrating it. So he has this humble boldness driven by love in which he is saying, I'm going to say some hard things. And listen, a debate can be awkward enough because it means there's disagreement. If you don't like disagreement, you might not like debates. It just might seem like a lot. But when you have to actually say something, it takes courage. And the people don't oftentimes want to say things. If there is a debate, if there is a division... What's the risk in saying something? Why would you not want to? Because you're going to make half the people mad. You, are, you will essentially, at least it's potential, right? You know the potential. If I say what I believe is right, then everyone that disagrees with this will now see me as an enemy or an obstacle to overcome. And we've seen this more and more. There used to be a day, I know we all, this is an old guy thing, I guess. I don't know. I'm saying it more. There was a time when you could disagree more charitably than today. You are evil if you disagree today. You are automatically evil. You are a terrible person if you don't agree with my stance. That is oftentimes what I'm seeing in, in, the, in the culture. And so, yeah, we don't want to be courageous and say something because it could mean that we're going to experience blowback, but that's why it's called courage, right? You've got to stand up in the, in the midst of your fear and insecurity to say what is right for the good of the church. So it sometimes requires debate. Peace in the church will always call for courage. Number three, it will always seek Scripture. I'll always seek Scripture. And we see this happening here in, in this passage in verses 12 through 18. So they hear what, uh, what Peter says, and it says the assembly fell silent, like they were really listening. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So James, uh, so, so Peter... Paul, Paul and Barnabas, they jump on and they share more of the same. God has been doing the same thing through us throughout our whole missionary journey. And after they finished speaking, then James replied, that's the brother of Jesus. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Simon. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So now he's quoting from the, the Old Testament. and says, guys, this debate is good because it's driving us back to God's word. And what does God's word say? God's word says throughout the Old Testament that he is going to call a people that are not his people, his people. He's gonna go through the nation of Israel to the entire world and bring everybody together, every tribe, tongue, and nation together under one Messiah, one Savior. That is the end game. He says it to Abraham, right? Abraham, you look at Genesis 12, 15, 17, this this covenant that God makes with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, listen, I'm going to make you, your descendants, into a mighty nation. It's going to be a great nation, right? And this would be Israel. But then he says, and through you, I'm going to bless all the inhabitants of the earth, like everybody, like it's not just going to be about this nation. There's my grace is going to go through you, and it's going to go around the globe. It'll be global. And you go on and you read the prophets speaking about God's grace going beyond Israel. Let me just give you um, just a, two two passages here uh, to consider. Let's look at Isaiah chapter forty nine. Verse six, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is what God has been teasing throughout. Salvation is going to go through Israel, right, through the prophets, through the Christ. It's going to go global. Everyone will be brought together in a new kingdom. Or you can consider Psalm 67. 1 and 2, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. What does it mean for God's saving power to be known among all nations, but that they also are experiencing God's saving power? It's not just that they see it from afar, but they are experiencing it themselves. So we James goes to the scripture and he says, listen, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of what has been promised, what has been said. And this is why we as the church are always going back to the scripture. We always ground ourselves in God's word, in God's revelation, because we know that it is the only sufficient and infallible rule for our life, for our doctrine, for our walk. In all matters in faith and practice, the scripture is the authority. So we go. And especially if we're looking at what it does for the health in the church and the health in our hearts, because if we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, if you've been at Redeemer oh, for a while, you know these verses well for sure, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is where we get the notion of the Scripture being inspired of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So just realize the the, the, the impulse here of James. He's going to grab Scripture. He's going to go, see, in the midst of this debate... Here is what the Scripture says. Here is the truth. And so what's happening? That's now going to be used for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's it's going to have an impact in the church. So we pursue peace, theological peace, in the church. It requires debate. It calls for courage. It seeks the Scripture. And finally, it will call for or demand unity, but a certain kind of unity, not just a unity based around affinity and common interests. We're talking about theological, spiritual unity, but also a compassionate and practical unity. So look at verses 19 through uh, 21 here. Therefore, this is James, he's still talking. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who would turn to God. So that's the first part. He says, listen, circumcision issue is done. Stop it. God does not require them to be circumcised, to be saved, to enter the kingdom of God, to be at peace with the Lord, to be a part of the church. It's not required, so we're going to knock it off. In other words, there is a theological unity, a spiritual unity, where these people are grounded in Christ. That is the way we enter into the kingdom and the church, through faith in Christ. So there is this unity that's called around the gospel itself, But then there is a compassionate, practical kind of unity that he calls for, which can be confusing. So he says, don't trouble them who are turning to God. The implication is about circumcision, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood, here he, he's, he's largely referencing these, these, these cultic rituals, these, these civil laws and commands that were given to the nation of Israel governed as a theocracy where they weren't allowed to eat certain kinds of foods. There were dietary restrictions put in place by God for them to set them apart as a unique nation. And a lot of the Jews who were trusting in Christ and joining the church, right there were these large, large very Jewish congregations following Christ, their whole lives they've heard the scripture read. Their whole lives they've not only heard but practiced a restricted diet. And so now as Christians, they're not up and changing their diets. They're, they're still pretty sensitive to all of that. This is all very new. It's all happening so fast. And so what James is saying is: listen, it's probably a good idea to tell these, these Gentiles when they are entering into the church to be willing to lay aside their freedom or their liberty for the sake of of unity and not causing distraction or divisions in the church. We're going to talk more about this. In fact, it's either next week or the the next one after that. We're going to talk about this whole idea of uh, of the conscience of weaker brothers and sisters and food sacrificed to idols because I want us to be able to deal with it very specifically. But in short, what he is saying here is, listen, Gentiles, new Christians, you're coming into a context where... These are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been raised up in God's revelation in ways that were a part of the old covenant, and they're they're still trying to disentangle themselves, if they even are at this point, from some of that which they have been set free from. So be patient with them. This is a kind of unity. It's practical. It's like put each other first. So that's the call. If the church is going to be healthy, it will sometimes require debate, and that's okay. We're allowed to argue. You're allowed to argue, guys, going to call for courage. It'll always seek the Scripture, and it'll demand unity. Let me read one passage of Scripture for you, if I can. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, because I think this hits it rather well for us. Here is the kind of unity we're talking about. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the basis of unity. Unity. It's what establishes peace in local churches. So what does this mean for us? Peace in the church and in our hearts is built on biblical theology. Peaceful churches are a possibility. If you've been here long enough, you know that this is largely true here. Now, peaceful churches are theologically established, though more is required than just theology. But this is the foundation Everything else rises up from it. But what about peaceful hearts? See, it's not just a principle that grants peace to a church, but much of the peace that a church experiences is stemming from the peace that we have individually in our hearts. And the peace that we experience in our hearts is also, just like in the church, it is theologically established. See, the peace that we have, it's found in God because he's the one who offers peace peace with God. We can find peace in God today in the midst of our circumstances, difficulties, afflictions, because he is the God who gives us peace with him. You guys know Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 says that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is at the, at the heart of the gospel that sinners can be made at peace with God. There is peace. An antipathy, there, there, is, there is an enmity that exists between us and God before we are forgiven, before the point of faith. And the point at which we believe in Jesus, we are reconciled and acceptable, we are justified. God gives us that peace, and that is the foundation, that principle, that act of his, is, is what gives us hope to find peace in all situations. Let me read one other verse here, Isaiah chapter 26. Verse 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. God keeps you in perfect peace when your mind is stayed on him because it's giving birth to trust. You take your eyes off of the Lord, off of his word, and we are left to what we can observe and experience in the world, and we are not only imbalanced but we are capsized. But we find and experience peace from the God who is peace, for us. Really what this means in a practical sense is that everyone here is called to be a theologian. Everybody is called to be a theologian. There won't be peace in the church and there won't be peace in your heart unless you are a theologian. Do you love God? If you love God, then you will love his book. But maintain that order. Because there are some people that treat theology like it's just another hobby, and they love the book. It's like they love the book, so they love God. They get it reversed. You can, you can actually turn the Bible, which is a gift from God, meant to to direct us to God. You can turn the Bible into a kind of idol where you become more interested in knowing Bible facts, right? It's not about truth anymore for some people. It's about trivia. It's It's about amassing data so that you can then engage in some ownage of your own. Like for some people, it's not about God as much as it is about the game of God knowing rules and and quoting verses and having everything memorized. Listen, knowing the scripture is absolutely critical to your spiritual life. But the theologian loves the Bible because he or she loves God. You're not See a theologian is driven by love, not curiosity. Curiosity is good. I like here. I'm curious. If I see a button I don't know what it does, I'm pushing the button every time. Ten out of ten times, I push that button. And then it gets me in trouble sometimes. Totally worth it every time. Curiosity is good, but what what drives a theologian is love. Love for the God who made you and has revealed himself in this book. And if you are not a Christian, if you are not yet a follower of Christ, I'll say this, you are a theologian. You have concepts and ideas about God things that you hold, maybe very few, maybe very, very few things at all. But you are a theologian of sorts. And the first time you will ever experience true spiritual peace is when in your theology you recognize Jesus as Lord. It's when you see Christ and you see you are the Son of God who dies for sinners like me. When you Embrace Christ, you find peace with God, and then you find peace with other people who have found peace with God. And you'll grow. You'll grow in that. Second Peter one two says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace can be multiplied. To you. Grace and peace in the church and in our hearts through the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you uh, comfort us, strengthen us, correct us wherever we need it? We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who love theology because we love you who love your book because we love you. And we pray that you would help us to be the best theologians that we can be, not that we might be right, but so that we might glorify you in the faith that we hold, but also hold out to others. In Jesus' name, amen.